Oh, sh**, that's my phone. Oh, no, it's... Oh, bollocks. I'm oh, just going to have to ignore him. You sure? <laughs> it's... Then you should probably answer it, right? Yeah, sorry, hold yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's gone. So, F you, Darren. <laughs> Hello, and welcome Aww. to episode 80. Finally, we're in the 80s. Ah, oh, there's, there's podcasts I listen to that are in the 200 and 300 and something episodes, and here we are crawling along in the less than hundreds numbers. Yeah, I listened um, to Skeptic's Guide to the Universe the other day and noticed it was up to 800 and something. I think, oh, oh God. those sceptical <laughs> bastards. Yeah, I was listening to Sasquatch Chronicles, <laughs> and he's on episode 4,600. Actually, I've got no <laughs> idea. Um, yes, welcome to the Tetraboard Zoology Podcasts. I'm Sonequa Martin Green, and today I'm podcasting with... Hmm, the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> Episode 80 and you still haven't... Uh, yep, uh, an action-packed uh, but hopefully brief episode today because time is tight. Um, should we just get straight into it? Yep. First thing on the agenda is, as I think you've already pulled that rabbit out of that hat, is F you! F you, John. F you, Darren. Can you guess what my two pieces of FU are, John? No. Well, they're very important. Number one, <laughs> the ca- the cast of Romancing the Stone. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, well, okay, it's so important we get these things right. Got to nail this. Got to drill down on these details. This is this is this is why it's called this is the science. Um, <laughs> Michael Douglas, his character was called Jack Colton. Kathleen Turner's character was not Gene Wilder. That's someone very different. Joan Wilder and Danny DeVito's character was just called Ralph. Uh, okay, and the other crucial thing is um, was it, I think it was actually two episodes back, which would be episode 78. Uh, we spoke about Carnotaurus mm. and, um, and, I, and I, I screwed up. Carnotaurus was not a 1990s dinosaur. I mean, I first became aware of it in the 90s, but it had been published in 1985 by Jose Bonaparte alone. And it was that monograph, um, which was the key big work of the 90s. And that was, uh, as I think you said at some point, uh, Bonaparte, Novus and Korea. That's the follow up. Um, See, so, I, I knew that. But I um, do, obviously I don't listen to you because, I mean, it's, it's obvious it was the 80s. It's in uh, Dinosaurs Past and Present, which is on my desk and was on the desk at the time, which is published in 1987. Exactly. Good point. Yeah, I remember first becoming a, being aware of Carnotaurus due to I have a lot of um, popular dinosaur books to hand. But um, um, oh, hold on, there's a whole bunch of things in the way. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Knocking boxes over and stuff. Uh, I great podcasting. A, great, well, this is important. Can you see yeah. this book? No. Nope. <laughs> ah, sorry, my. Can you see me? I can see you, yes. Can you see this book? I can see the book, yeah. Do you recognise it? Um, the Prehistoric World of the Dinosaur. The Prehistoric no. World of the Dinosaur by Dr. David Norman. And oh, that's interesting. As a uh, 1989. Oh, right, because I remember seeing this book, and I thought it was 1990, and this was the first book where I ever saw Carnotaurus. And it's... Uh, the, the illustrations in this book are by an individual known as Philip Hood, who will be familiar to many of you uh, in part due to his association with Dougal Dixon. Philip Hood's work has a very distinctive style. And this was this was the very first Carnotaurus that I ever saw, John. Check that out. Can you see that? I can't see. <laughs> I can't see what you can see because yeah. we're having we're having camera Put it up a little issues bit. today. Yeah, yeah. That, that was oh, okay. that was my first Carnotaurus because, of course, at this time, in the uh, 1980s, I wasn't um, seeing the technical literature. I was l- learning about things when I first saw them in popular books. So that was the first uh, outing of Carnotaurus for me. 
and then sort of would have seen it in the David Lambert's uh, Dinosaur Data book after that. So that was long before I ever saw a, a technical thing. Um, uh, moving, okay, talking a lot of rubbish here. The second thing I want to talk about is um, John's art. Like in or, general? No, no, heavens <laughs> no. Um, uh, specifically with relation to uh, at least two of your most recent pieces um because when i came up with this uh, agenda which yeah, put a lot of t- time and thought into it i can um, see that yeah it, it was when it was when you had done that one of two paulian dinosaurs but with um human faces on them mm. and i want to hear uh like a lot more about that but before i want to hear a lot more about that i want you to hear what i think is going on there okay right? yep now, what I think is going on there is there's a there's a line in Greg Paul's 1986 um, or 1987 uh, rigorous how-to guide. Again, that should be to hand. All the books are meant to be here to hand, so I can just grab them off the shelf. There's the whole point of having that shelf right there. It's not gone well so far. Um, yeah, Greg Paul's 1987 article, The Science and Art of Restoring um, Dinosaurs and Their Relatives of Rigorous How-To Guide, or whatever it's called, something like that. Mm-hmm. He says in there that he basically Snappy says... Snappy title. Snappy title. Paraphrasing him, this is, of course, in Volume 2 of Dinosaurs Past and Present, which John and I have discussed at length on previous occasions. Um, Paul says that any old idiot can just come along and you know scribble a dinosaur and add lots of imaginary details. But in order to actually produce a work that is of some artistic merit and value, one must... Uh, demonstrate their street cred in the world of actually being able to produce some art in the same way that for example i think he says this um in the same way that like you know any old idiot could do some cubist stuff you know i could just randomly draw a person with like their nose on the where their ear should be and their eyes on the same side of the face like a flatfish uh but in order to demonstrate that i actually have some artistic skill and this work is, is 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 worthy of a, uh, its rightful place in the Louvre, I have to have first of all done me some bowls of fruit and portraiture, and um, you know done some beautiful um, pastel lily pads or something in order to sh- basically show that one is of uh, you know got some artistic skills, and th- then they can show that they are in an appropriate place to to do some Greg Paul open mouth running right to left dinosaurs. So I looked at your piece of art, John, and I thought, I know what you've done there. You've deliberately said that, look, I can draw Greg Paul dinosaurs, <laughs> but I'm a proper artist because, look, here's some people as well. <laughs> I've just decided to merge them together into one piece to, to save time. <laughs> Am I right? Absolutely not. Oh. No. <laughs> That's a cool story, though. That's real good. It's really convoluted. And, uh, yeah. Um, I don't think Greg Paul did say anything of the sort in the... Um, I'll, fi- I'll find the words and quote it while, while you're talking. Because I'm, I'm looking at the very article now, and I can't imagine where he would have said that. Definitely did. He does say something about avoiding filling in hypothetical details without getting the basic shape right. A very nasty jab directed at William Stout. Is that who is directed Without at? doubt. Yeah. Without any doubt, it's Stout. <laughs> yeah. Well, Stout doesn't get the basic shape right a lot of the time. I, but it's kind of deliberate. He's, he's got a lot of great stories, though. He's a brilliant guy. I love yeah, hanging yeah. out with him. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, you know, yeah, he's interesting. Um, um, no, no, that's not what at all, at all. But that's a cool story. No, unfortunately, it was more just... Um, Social commentary. The ridiculousness of getting dinosaurs to do this all the time. I just imagined what would that be like if they had human faces. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so so oh. imagine all these stu- these dinosaur paintings, but they had human faces. That would look really stupid, wouldn't it? And there we go. That's it. Oh. And also I'll... the emotion that goes with it. I just it's just a um sort of hilarious visual image. Because uh, the thera- like predators are really angry and 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 plant eaters are really scared, and that's why everyone's got their mouth <laughs> wide open. It's just stupid. <laughs> oh, the the, ther- the theropod is for those who haven't seen it. The theropod is like a skinhead lout, 
and the herbivore is some kind of meek, um, I don't know, nondescript, blank-faced person. <laughs> but I guess that's your point. Yeah. Well, it's it's a very nice piece of art, and I I did what? I, how have I lost dinosaurs past and present volume two? That's always. And I tell you, though, I feel a little bit bad about this work of art because I'm a big fan of Greg Paul, as you know. And um, I used his style because it's so recognisable from the period and that sort of thing, I guess. But I actually think Greg Paul is not the most guilty of this. And, um, yeah, and I like his artwork. It wasn't meant to be a, a, a jab at Greg Paul. It was mm. just recognizable 90s stuff and yeah wouldn't it be funny if they had human faces and that's it's, about it. yeah well that's a good point it's, it's ironic that he himself has actually said that he made you know okay so we many many of us yourself and myself included have been heavily inspired to say the least by his style but he does specifically say that and i think this is in predatory dinosaurs as well he says when, you know, when i imagine animals i see shafts of light and dust and the animals are trying to do animal things so it's kind of ironic that uh He's uh, yeah, characterised for these uh, things like shrink wrapping and uh, uh, open mouth roaring and everyone's running right to left. Actually, he produces a lot of work that you never really see because his published work, I think, tends to be the more dramatic predator-prey things, you know, this sort of stuff. But it's, it's interesting how much work I, he, I think he has produced. Of course, it's difficult to find out because... He doesn't really have anything on the internet. Um, His we website's don't... pretty good, actually. His website? No, it isn't. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I was having to check his autobiography. Oh, his autobiography is, is, is long and complete. Oh. But you try and find his artwork on his website. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, you know, like most uh, modern paleo artists, you sort of, um, that have come up in the internet era, you're going to see an awful lot of um, their work because they've just put it online for years, right? And you can see just about everything they've ever done. Um, whereas for Greg Paul, I think you're seeing just the tip of the iceberg when you look at what he's actually had printed in popular books. There's an awful lot of things that are out there that have only been in one book, for example. Um, yep. If you've never seen that book, you've never seen it. And I think there's a lot of work out there like that. Yeah, so I, I, I did want to make the point that yeah, when we when we think of these uh, these things as like key trope wearing Paulian pieces, exactly what you said is right. It's because we've seen the same piece many many times and haven't seen many of the others. Because there's a, there's a lot of stuff in um, the the Princeton Field Guide, yeah. or as as the the UK edition is called Dinosaurs a Field Guide, um, where it is just animals standing around. Just yeah. animal, at, here's an animal standing around at the edge of a meadow. It's not doing anything. It's just you know, he, he did a lot of that, and um, yeah, yeah. Um, lots, of di- lots of planting <clears throat> is eating, which is my favourite thing now. Like, yep, they spend all nearly all their time doing that. We should probably show it a bit more. Um, yeah, so exactly. Okay, uh, we and you know we do talk about Greg Paul quite a lot, and I think that's because um, his role in the portrayal of dinosaurs is. I say this every flipping time I talk about Greg Paul, still, I think, unappreciated. Um, I don't think that like a sufficient number of modern people interested in dinosaurs actually, because he's, I don't want to talk about him at length, because again, we have done it before, but um, I don't think he gets credit because he's mostly regarded these days as like a fringe voice or someone that you shouldn't be paying attention to, mm. because he, he because he did do quite a few weird um, papers that have not been popular, but his impact on the look of dinosaurs, the style of you know, how dinosaurs are portrayed, the relationship between dinosaurs and the landscape, the the look of the Jurassic Park dinosaurs is all is all that's all down to Greg Paul. Those are all Greg Paul dinosaurs. That's how they started anyway before they were tweaked and pushed and pulled around by yeah, kind of ruined, kind of ruined. But yeah, um, yeah, I think that's true. And I think um, if you didn't. You have to have been a very particular age for this to really make a huge difference and realise just what a break all that was, right? That pre, pre-Greg Paul dinosaurs and post-Greg Paul dinosaurs are completely different. Um, and if you're a bit younger, you grew up with second, second-hand Greg Paul dinosaurs. <laughs> See what I mean? Um, yeah. 
And so or, you're, you might have different influences, but often they those people are influenced by Greg Paul. Yeah, or or you saw dinosaur stuff in the eighties that was post Greg Paul, and yet was clearly completely blissfully unaware of his stuff. Yes. So for many many people, if you are of the eighties or nineties, you will know David Norman's Illustrated Encyclopedia of Dinosaurs. I think it's one of the best selling and most influential dinosaur books ever. And, um, and every, I think everyone likes John Civic's art. They like some aspect of John Civic's art and how, you know, his his particular style or, or the detail he puts in. I mean, there are many, many people that don't like his style. I know you have a take on it. But um, I remember seeing that book when it was new in whenever it was, 85 or 86. And it was like, this is, could it be that this artist is, is unaware of the dinosaur renaissance? It's like, this is really weird. These are like 1950, mostly 1950s dinosaurs with just a, a faint whiff here and there of like a, you know, obviously you can't do Dinonychus and not make it look like Robert Backer's Dinonychus. But um, by and large, they weren't um, mirroring the stuff that was elsewhere familiar by the 80s if you were looking at dinosaur art. Yes, there were definitely some holdouts. <laughs> and again i could talk about that at length um this this again as as i think we've said in a couple of recent episodes this is on my mind because a book i'm working on which does cover some of this some of this stuff um i did want to talk about your other uh, another new piece of yours which is a uh, uh, a hadrosaur but um let's leave that till next time because i'm in a hurry and that's enough about you yeah um <laughs> moving moving on uh alien worlds so um, I'm currently working on a giant project, which I can't talk about. And be- but before I worked on that giant project, which I can't talk about, I worked on another one, which I couldn't talk about. And that one is now uh, it's a TV series and it's being um, where well, it's at least some of it is released on December 2nd on Netflix. Uh, this is the year 2020. Yeah. The case. last year, <laughs> in case if you're if you're in the future, and and who knows what's happened. Uh, but yeah, Alien Worlds. Um, I've got to say, I don't know if you've seen the trailer, but I'm feeling pretty good about it. It's like it's looking pretty good. It's uh, the idea is we came up with. Okay, there was it, they're now calling it season one. It's like well, that's news to me. I didn't. There, there was there was no talk of being more than one season when I was involved in it. Uh-huh. Um, so we came up with five worlds with different parameters in terms of, you know, gravity, their relationship to nearby stars and um, whether they're like high productivity worlds or desert planets or cold planets or whether they're tidally locked, came up with all, all that kind of stuff. Obviously, if you do, you know, for the purposes of TV and, and, and the purposes of storytelling and the purposes of like actually getting people to watch something, you can't really do all the stuff that you would do about alien life like this this is a planet where there's nothing but invisible microbes <laughs> this is another planet where we've also discovered life and this one also has invisible <laughs> microbes and this one now this one's different it's a gas giant and it's also got life and these also are invisible microbes you couldn't do that you have to say this is a planet where due to extreme productivity and uh you know unusual temperature shifts because of blah 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 you know whatever there's a massive tidal range and this this uh this these giant slug type animals have evolved and this predator has evolved and it can fly and leap and blah 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 you know you have you kind of have to come up with stuff like that if it's going to be you know deemed worthy by whoever's giving you the money to make it and is going to bring in an audience so there's I, as has been said before, Dougal Dixon said this at one of the Tetsucon meetings, the shape of alien life is in some way, its fundamental constraint is not natural selection, but it is human preference for what people want to see in terms of edutainment, which is not a trivial point. Um, so yep. do keep that in mind, obviously. So we've got, I mean, for example, we've got, I don't want to give too much away, but on a planet which has got a set of specific you know it's got a specific regime we have like giant sky manta creatures and at the time you know when we were coming up with these creatures it was like mm, it's not really very likely that you'd get creatures like that under this specific 
you know gravitational regime or whatever but it's a pretty cool idea so we're gonna go with it and if we've got those then we should have some kind of like predators or parasites or something um so that's a whole thing there's a um there there, there is a an animal which i mean i haven't seen the final thing I'll, I'll be seeing it new i'm only going from what i've seen in the trailer but there's a creature that looks like a space koala or a space lemur mm-hmm. in the 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 trailer now when we were building it that was called a space rabbit but that was kind of like a a nickname for a creature that's meant to be like a primary consumer of plant material and is meant to like be very fast at reproducing and is meant to use saltation in escape (laughs) it wasn't (laughs) meant to be in any way like a a furry mammal and uh, the actual creature that i invented the space rabbit didn't look like no rabbit Mm -hmm. (laughs) it looked like a loaf of bread with eyes on the top and three sets of limbs and an internal um, air sac system. Uh, and and they've kept the eyes. The eyes look the same. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so, of course, in promoting this, I've had lots of my colleagues in the zoological and paleontological world saying, oh, it looks awfully lot like Megalodapis elima. Or, or, oh, it's funny that it's, got, it's, funny that it's furry and cute. It looks like baby Yoda. It's like, yeah, look, I didn't actually design the final look of it. (laughs) Rumble, rumble. Um, Alien World, Netflix, December 2nd. I'm hoping it's pretty good, but I do think it's important to remember that while there will be lots of discussion of how we think evolutionary processes will shape organisms under different, you know, conditions different regimes um there is the fundamental constraint that that alien life in some way has to be made interesting for tv yeah indeed and also i would say that the constraints of natural selection in all sort the all the sorts of environments that you could possibly imagine life evolving in it's just too unconstrained I mean, where do you even start? There's so much that is possible. So many things that we didn't even really think about, like so many body chemistries and weird and weird um, biomechanics that would go on in different gravities and stuff. I mean, it's interesting to think about, but it's just too unconstrained. It's too big a space. We can't really say, well, we think in this place we'd get this sort of body. Well, Sort of, maybe, yes. maybe, <laughs> but you might yeah. get the exact opposite because we haven't really thought about the, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just it just feels like a wide, wide open field that you can't really say anything intelligent about unless you constrain it in some other way as well. And of course, you know, yeah, human interest is not actually a terrible place to start. It's a commentary on what goes on on our planet and how to think about things. Right. And then, like, if you're gonna, you know, if you if you've got a series, and again, you want it to be successful, and you want to sort of like tell compelling stories, and also teach people something, then you are probably thinking, what's what stories are you going to tell people about alien life? And immediately you think, you know, what do we actually know about the history of life? Well, let's let's think. There's there's um, the the evolution of adaptation to life in the air. You know, that's a fundamental story. Uh, adaptation to life on land. That's a fundamental story. Sexual selection. That's a fundamental story. Um, how animals have dealt with gravity. The evolution of skeletons and internal skeletons and exoskeletons. And so immediately you're thinking you should probably have a story that's about flying things. You should probably have one that's about like an arthropod style world. You should probably have one that's about predation. You should probably have one that's about an organism that looks after its young and an organism that produces a billion young and only a handful survive. And immediately you have, as, as you've just said, you've, you've kind of already sort of uh, not locked yourself into, but you, you, you therefore have like a, a select number of things that are kind of guiding the direction that your creatures will take. Cause otherwise, yeah, it's like, where are you going to go? So let me show you some sketches of some of our creatures. Oh, yeah, yeah. Great, great yeah. podcasting again. Yeah, yeah. You can see those. See, yeah. and look, 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 at, look at that. See what that, <laughs> we called that creature Ludwig. Um, <laughs> where's the, where's the, oh, you see there's some like giant tardigrade type things. They've got to have your yeah. giant tardigrades. That's, that's not a science fiction trope that hasn't been done before. Um, <laughs> so, December 2nd. December 2nd, Netflix. Yep. Yeah. Cool. And that seems to be international. There's some things that are exclusive to UK Netflix or the 
does North America work as a block, or does does the U.S. do different things from the rest North of North America? North America usually, well, sorry, Canada and the U.S. normally work as a block, but I don't think it's relevant in this case. It looks like a worldwide release to me. Yeah. So on to the main event, and this is something that we discussed. I'm, I'm running out of time. I'm not sure how much more before I've got to go. But um, uh, we did, in the last two episodes, talking about like pretty in-depth dinosaur-y stuff, we mentioned this very distinctive and peculiar group of Mesozoic dinosaurs called the Scansoriopterygids. And I was thinking that we should, like meander all over the place on those for a few minutes yeah that sounds good go on if you go then can we can we shorten their name i cannot be saying this over and over again yes if you haven't heard this word before it's pretty horrible okay anything that climbs is called a scancer and anything that's got if you've got wings like archaeopteryx or pterodactyl there's that p-t-e-r-y bit that means wing so these are climbing with a wing, Scansor, Reopteri, and then because it's a family group name, it, it's Scansoriopterygids. <sighs> so nasty. It's a it's a small group, currently only four recognised taxa um, that are probably middle and late Jurassic. They have been claimed to be early Cretaceous. Uh, because the beds they come from in China are of controversial age. They're called the uh, Daohogu um, beds. And, um, yeah, there's sort of different ideas on exactly what their age is, but they probably are middle to late Jurassic, so that puts them at round about, say, between 170 and 150 million years ago, I think. Mm -hmm. And they were first published in 2002 by Stephen Cherkus, who we've mentioned a couple of times, and... Uh, a colleague whose full name I've forgotten. I don't have, as usual, have no preparation done on this. Uh, Yuan, Y-U-A-N. So it's Cherkus and Yuan, 2002. They published the the first paper on these things, and it was in a um, a volume. Was it called Feathered Dinosaurs? It was a Stephen and Stephen and Sylvia Cherkus. They published this. Uh, a slightly esoteric volume on a set of new Chinese um, feathered dinosaurs of various kinds. And there's a whole complicated backstory to that volume and the papers therein. But they published a paper in there on this. They included in that volume a, a paper on an animal which they called Scansoriopterics. Scansoriopteryx. Scansoriopteryx. Heilmanai. They named it after Gerhard Heilman. Mm who we've discussed before, and I'm not going to start talking about him because that's a long tangent. And that was, so that's 2002. Within about the, okay, about the same time as Scansoriopteryx is published, another animal called Epidendrosaurus is published by another team. And, okay, these animals, they're theropods. They're part of the group that includes predatory dinosaurs and birds. They're very small. Um, total length, off the top of my head, I'm going to say, like, I don't know, 20 centimetres or something. Mm-hmm. And... Um, they have got three-fingered hands, as is typical for theropods, and their third finger is really long, which is unusual for theropods because normally digit second, the second finger is the longest one. They have got little teeth, probably, and like probably a longish tail. That's not really clear. And I think Scansoropteryx it's got some scales patches of scales preserved here and there but it's also got evidence of like a feathery covering of some kind so they're probably little potentially tree climbing because this long hand has been was suggested right from the start to be something to do with um climbing and probing into holes in wood and stuff and i think there's Something about the f- oh my god why do I not know this or have this to hand something about their feet is also used to suggest they're climbing so Epidendrosaurus and Scansoriopteryx they probably are you know people then get in a bit of an argument in 2002 are these actually the same animal and there's a bit of toing and froing and it's mostly decided by the community today that Epidendrosaurus was named was published first and therefore if they are the same thing if they're synonymous then as they do seem to be then that's the right name for this animal, Epidendrosaurus. So, you know, what are these? 
Now, there's a, a sort of side tangent on these creatures. There's, there's, there's actually like the story of these dinosaurs is so complicated, so many twists and turns. I'm, again, I'm worried about tangents. <laughs> but um, this, the first, uh, well, the, the, the Cherkis and Yuan paper, they say that these animals are actually not, what do they say? They say they are, they say they're not theropods. So they're not theropods. They say they're probably related in some way to birds, but some archaic anatomical features, in particular the shape of the hip bones, shows these animals aren't theropods, that they are some other kind of saurischian, so part of this major group that's conventionally thought to include sauropods and kin, sauropodomorphs and theropods, but they're outside dinosaurs. <laughs> so it's like, they're not dinosaurs, they're not theropods, but they're saurischians, and uh, all of a sudden these animals are all, as soon as they're published somehow they are involved in the story of um uh birds not being dinosaurs which is a a point of view that some individuals have expressed and Stephen Jerkus was one of them but both of these if, if epidendrosaurus and scansoropteryx are the same thing then a, a confounding factor is that they both seem to be juveniles so Again, as soon as they're published, people are saying, well, if they're juveniles, what does an adult look like? You know, are these like little climbing juveniles of an animal that's as an adult is like the size of a person or bigger or not? Are they always small? And that isn't answered until the publication of another animal, Epidepshipteryx, <laughs> which I do have a paper on that open somewhere that is published oh it doesn't have a date on it because it's a well i can't say what it is it's not the actual published paper um when is epidex shipdrix published 2008 2008 thank you so yeah a new one is published epidex shipdrix and this one has got um long strap-like structures they could be feathers or they could be feather-like integumentary structures. It's got long strap-like things growing out of the end of its tail. And it seems to show now for Epidendrosaurus slash Scansoropteryx, it was like, what is the deal with the tail? Because, um, oh no, one of them is said to have a long tail and the other one said to have a short tail. It's kind of ambiguous as to what the condition with the tail is. Epidexhipteryx shows that the tail is actually relatively short doesn't have that many vertebrae in it and at the end of the tail it's got yeah like these long strap like filaments which look like if this was a living animal and you saw a thing like that you'd think that's probably like a sexual display structure and if you found a sexual display structure in this animal then it's probably sexually mature or close to sexual maturity mm. and therefore um it's probably an adult so do we have an adult member of this group and the describers, um, that Zhang et al., they say, yeah, this is an adult, and it's about the size of a pigeon. So it shows that that those previous two specimens, if they are, whatever I said, about six, uh, 20 centimetres long-ish, then they're like the size of, I don't know, like a robin, as in a proper robin, not an American robin which isn't robin at all um <laughs> then it shows take that americans take that um it shows that that full size is pigeony size as in total length of yeah. i don't know let's say 30 centimeters so they weren't like so those two earlier specimens aren't like little tiny nestlings they're probably you know well-grown juveniles not that far away from adulthood now i was a reviewer for the Epidepshipteryx paper. And here's a really juicy bit of hitherto unreleased information, which will just blow everyone away who really is into the uh, history of dinosaur science. Are you ready for this? Yeah. Well, I don't know, actually. I'm, you know, so in the, original, yeah, in the original mat submitted manuscript, which I'm looking at now, the authors... Fu, Sheng, Zhang, and colleagues, they were going to call this group of dinosaurs Epidendrosauridae. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. You do realize that 
Cherkas and Yuan have already published the name Scansoriopterigidae for Scansoriopteryx. And even though Scansoriopteryx isn't currently considered a valid name, because as of 2008, people have mostly decided that it's a junior synonym of Epidendrosaurus, a family name still stands, even if the type genus for that family isn't a, recognize, a currently recognized valid name. This is a really common misconception in vertebrate paleontology. People think that if the type genus has been, it isn't in current, current use anymore because it's been demoted to like a, you know, what, a nomen dubium or a junior synonym, then it means the family name ain't no good no more. Um, the, this famously most recently happened with um, Pristicampsine or Pristicampsid crocodiliforms. Chris Brochu has argued that Pristicampsus is a nomen dubium, so therefore the name Pristicampsini or Pristicampsidae can't be used, so therefore you have to use the next available name, which is I think is Planocranidae. And it's like that's not correct according to the ICZN, the International Commission on Zoological Nomenclature. They don't say that a family, they do have a whole bunch of rules. I seem to remember it's Article 67, but I could be completely wrong. They they do have a bunch of rules on how you formulate a family level name, but they don't say it has to be based on a valid genus. And there's uh, there's lots of examples of that in zoology. And there's also lots of counterexamples where people have done the wrong thing. So, again, a classic example is Tyrannosauridae. So a bunch of authors said you can't use, well, Dale Russell, 1970, said you can't use Dinodontidae, Matthew and Brown, 1922 or whatever it is anymore, because Dinodon is no longer in use. So we have to go for the next youngest name, which is Tyrannosauridae, and, and that's now ubiquitous. You know, we're not going to change that because now it's ubiquitous. Everyone's using Tyrannosauridae. It's entrenched in the literature. It's fine. But technically, they shouldn't, Dale Russell shouldn't have gotten rid of Dinodontidae. We should still be using that name. So that's the same here. We sh they shouldn't have gone with Epidendrosauridae. They should have stuck with Scansoriopterigidae, which was published earlier, even though the name Scansoriopteryx uh, is no longer valid. And and I am responsible for this because I um, pointed this out in review and got them to change it. So, ha, 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 ha. Take so, that, <laughs> Epidendrosauridae. Uh, so take that, everyone who ever has to say Scansoriopterigidae, because <laughs> it's a, if it wasn't for me, it would be Epidendrosauridae. Hold on. Scansoriopterigidae. That's eight syllables. Epidendrosauridae. Oh, seven syllables. So that one extra syllable, all that extra amount of time in your life that you're losing by saying Scansoriopterigidae. I'm sorry, that's all down to me. Sorry about that. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So by now, by 2008, it's also obvious that these things, this that that whole Cherkas and Huan thing about them being like, who knows, outside of dinosaurs is like that's. Mm, let's just ignore that one. These animals clearly are theropods. They uh, have a bunch of features which show that they are Manoraptoran theropods. They're part of the same group as Oviraptorosaurs, Dromaeosaurs, birds, etc. Where do they fit in that group? That's not entirely clear. Now, a couple of features of their skull and falling proportions suggest they could be on the like bird line. So they could be closer to birds than they are to, say, Oviraptorosaurs or Therizinosaurs. Um, and you could discuss this at great length. I'm not going to. I'm just going to say that, in fact, coming all the way up to the present, um, people that have included Scansoropterygids in um, phylogenetic studies have actually found them to, like, there's a bunch of, like, potential places where they might go. Mm. They could be early members of the bird lineage. They could be members of AVLA, so part of that clade that includes everything that we conventionally call a bird, including, like, Archaeopteryx and stuff, but doesn't include dromaeosaurids and gyrodontids or they could be early members of the oviraptorosaur lineage that's been found a few times or they could be part of the group that includes dromaeosaurs gyrodontids and avialeans or they could be outside of all that lot outside of what's called peneraptera which is the oviraptorosaur plus paravian group there's it's not really clear i really like the idea that it might be early members of the Oviraptorosaur lineage, because that's the coolest idea. That is the coolest idea in there. So we'll, we'll run with that one then. 
<laughs> yeah. So fast forward to 2015 and E-Key is published, which I think we might have covered this when it was new um, on yeah. this podcast. We might have. And E-Key is another, it's, it's written Yai Kwai, <laughs> if you're a, uh, an anglophonic philistine as john is and uh yeah sorry as i am um <laughs> y i q i and that is published by shu shu shing and colleagues 2015 and um by the way this, this is the shortest published binomial for any dinosaur including the birds uh just four letters there is a philosophy behind these super short names, which is that some of the authors who've come up with them, and I'm not going to mention their names specifically, but mostly Mark Norell, um, they have deliberately come up with these super short names that you say in one go because they it's a subtle effort to try and do away with the um, uh, Mark Norell's not on the authorship of this name, so I'm talking nonsense, but um, it's a subtle attempt to do away with using the genus and not using the species they want us to use the whole name in one go Meilong, Iki uh, Shanagashil um, uh, a bunch of, and a bunch of others that's, that's the idea mm-hmm. I reckon, I reckon, I could be totally talking a lot of nonsense there but I reckon that's what they're doing um, that's not the most interesting thing about Iki, the most interesting thing <laughs> is so it's another little pigeony sized Scansoropterygid from the middle or late Jurassic of China. I said Daohogu. I should have probably said the Teoji Shan formation. It's about 160 million years old. Iki got feathery things as well. It's got wing membranes. That's what these guys have got wing membranes. That is ridiculous. Now, if you pay a lot of attention to what goes on in the dinosaur, like, you know, blogosphere and, um, you know, what, what people say outside of the technical literature, as, as uh, we certainly do, um, our good friend Andrea Cow had actually predicted beforehand that some um, scansoropterygids could possibly have wing membranes. There was actually a reason for thinking that based on the form of their uh, hands, this this weird elongate third finger. So yep. there's a couple of illustrations here and there that predate the discovery of Iki, which give it membranes. So it's like, what? Theropods evolved wing membranes? It then turns out that there's another animal called Ambopteryx, which was published in 2019, which is also said to have wing membranes as well, uh, published by Wang et al. Their, pu- their paper's a little bit odd because I think they called it something like the loss of wing membranes in theropod evolution, as if implying that this was a widespread thing outside the evolution of, um, you know, bird, the bird-like wing configuration, which I've never understood why they did that, because um, they do find these two membranous forms, E and Ambopteryx, they find them to be deeply nested within scans or up to rigidity. They're not saying they're like... I haven't read this paper, but are they arguing that... Um the avian wing evolved from the scansoropterygian wing and therefore very yeah they very specifically are not saying that you see which is why i don't understand their their angle it's like no you're if they if they had found the only reason they could justify that conclusion or that state that title is if they'd found scansoropterygids to be paraphyletic to yes birds and kin right and there's not yeah they didn't find that but i guess um yeah yeah well yeah i'm arguing yeah. about a paper i haven't read but i, I would argue that actually scansoropterygians are clearly not well understood enough to have a clear phylogenetic position and therefore they could be paraphyletic to something else right but there's no reason to think that they are no at the moment. no no in fact they seem to be off They're on very their own weird group. little um yeah uh, they're, they're really samey, in fact, yeah. and you you could even argue, and I think some people have implied this. It's not really clear that E. Key and Ambopteryx are actually distinct tacks, so they could be the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, another weird thing about them is that 
that these these membranous wings, which aren't don't go thinking of like, you know, for those of you who don't know what these animals look like, it's not like giant fruit bat, you know, wingspan or, or even, you know, flying squirrel or sugar glider or something. This they're relatively modest um membranes and they're supported internally. I don't I don't uh, I, you think? Yep. I don't know about that. Well, they're well, relatively uh, modest. Yeah, compared to body I, weight, are they? I, we don't they, really know their full extent, do we? I think we've got a fairly good handle. From, I mean, compared to like, so imagine a flying squirrel. Yeah. It's it's like a when it's gliding, it's a rectangular thing with a giant membrane, you know, projecting from its wrist to its ankles. Sure, and, but the the most lift comes from the leading edge of a wing. Um. And they've got pretty long arms. And we'll come back it's to that relatively a... deep. I mean, I'm not saying that they're like a... I don't, a, you know, if you don't know what we're talking about and you're trying to picture something, well, I would say actually imagining a short-winged bat or something is just not that far off, right? Well, uh, fair, I'm not fair enough, but I still don't think their membranes look as big as those of like a lot of other gliders you might imagine. I, when I think of, like I say, you know, there's a whole list of gliders and flyers that I imagine... Scansoropterygid wing membranes aren't as extensive as any of those, which mm. cut, which is relevant to something I want to come back to. Um, so remember that. Um, yeah. What I, the reason I'm discussing this now is because the membranes are supported internally by a totally novel structure that isn't present in any other theropods mm. or any other dinosaurs, and it's the styliform element. They have this long um, rod-like uh, structure. Hold on, did they call it a styliform again? Oh my god, I can't remember. There's uh, uh, some um, gliders, um, uh, uh, glided marsupials and rodents have evolved like accessory elements sticking out from the wrist that help support their wing membranes. Mm. And um, Scansoropterygids, or at least Yi, <laughs> E, Key, and Ambopteryx do have uh, a long styliform, this like long, slender, pointed wrist bone it's about as long as the um the longest bones elsewhere in the arm like the radius and ulna so they have this like accessory supporting membrane um i've discussed at tetrapod zoology the fact that when news on these animals broke in 2015 obviously eki got a lot of press and uh like all the images appearing online all showed these animals as like screaming batwing dragons <laughs> they're they're black they're screaming their mouths are wide open they've got their like wings like at full 2015 was probably i don't know peak game of thrones so um there was you know people very much pushing this oh wow they found they've actually found dragons in the fossil record finally we all knew it was true those stupid paleontologists they finally did something <laughs> something interesting they found <laughs> dragons were real uh, okay, it turns out that the dragons are actually the size of a pigeon, and this whole pigeony, this whole sorry dragony thing, is way off. It's like it doesn't look like a dragon. It looks like a stupid little pigeon. It looks like a a blunt-headed parrot with a little that 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 had got it on with a bat one day, and that is. That leads, of course, to your artwork. You specifically made it look like a stupid parrot. <laughs> <laughs> there are melanosomes known from the feathers of these animals, like from E.K. specifically. So we know that on at least part of their bodies, they were grey or black or some other colour. <laughs> so uh, didn't, you do, didn't you put some pink on it? I did, yeah, on its beak. <laughs> and its eye, Why not? it's pink. Yeah. yeah. But they do, they do have like a parroty, kind of vaguely parroty looking head. I mean, don't get me wrong, there are little teeth in there and stuff. But um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. interesting, they seem to be a bit of a mix of like, what exactly are they doing? I mean, you know, Andrea did compare them at one point to insect-eating bats, which I think is, is valid. The idea that, the, if, if you cast your mind back to when I said that the third finger was longest, back in the days of when epidendrosaurus and scansoropteryx were new in the world there was this idea that they would have done like eye eyes and striped possums and stuck their little you know slim fingers to get insects out of wood that was out there 
But um, that idea is probably not a thing if that third finger was co-opted into, um, you know, supporting a gliding membrane. Was that third finger always of, you know, some locomotory role? Or is it that it was initially a probing tool and then, you know, was exapted into a flight mechanism? We don't actually know. Um, But but I'm inclined to think that they probably weren't using that third finger as a foraging tool anymore um yeah the the what the reason you would think that right is because of the analogy i think to eye eyes but um it's always had the problem is that that finger was not different in other ways it was actually just as big and thick as the other fingers right it was yeah um so i think the whole reason for thinking that has gone away really that's right. Um, and and you should have some specialized morphology of the finger if it was used in that way. Mm. There is a little known paper by Phil Center, who we've mentioned a few times, various <laughs> interesting ideas, and his, and his amazing, amazing book, The Fire Breathing Dinosaurs one. Um, Phil Center um, was curious about the form of one of the hand claws in Carostenotes the oviraptorosaur, and he showed that the form of the finger, or the form of the claw, was actually most like that of animals that probe into cavities and stab things that are hiding in cavities. So, and I've actually forgotten whether it was the claw on digits two or three. I can't remember. I'm going to say two. Um, so that, and he said that because of unusual morphology of that claw. So and and he said that by comparing it, you know, with eyes and all kinds of other animals. So that paper should actually show this is another one of those cases where paleontologists have a question. They go and look at live animals. They find that zoologists haven't done the work on the anatomy of the live animals because they're too busy with genetics. And so the paleontologists have to do the work on the anatomy of the live animals. Very common problem. Lazy, lazy modern biologists, zoologists. It's all genes, genes, genes. Genes, God, should save us from genetics. Uh, sorry, geneticists. Um, and then very briefly, uh, what makes this group of animals timely right now? Why are people talking about them today at this very moment in time? Do you know what it is? Yeah, there was a paper of flight, which I have not, about their flight capabilities, which I haven't read. Yes. Um, I was asked to review this paper, but I had to turn it down for reasons of workload. Uh, this is um, Alex Dekechi and a long list of very worthy colleagues. And um, uh, Dekechi and colleagues, they've been looking at the aerodynamics and the like jumping abilities and the body masses of a whole range, all those like bird-like theropods, all the Manoraptorans, working out you know who can actually take off from the ground, who has to run up a surface before they can take off, who can use what's called wing-assisted incline running, and yada, yada, yada. And they did all this. Uh, it involves lots of calculations and lots of like sophisticated modelling. They did this for Scanceropterygids. And their results are really interesting because what they find is these animals do not have sufficient leaping. Ab- this is this is summarising and is no doubt actually incorrect. But um, my understanding is they're saying that they don't have the sufficient like leaping ability or uh, thrust once they actually leave the ground to launch from the ground, launch into flight. They say they uh, are not able to produce enough power, enough flappy flap power to actually use wing assisted incline running. They can't like flap their way up a tree trunk as like a lot of modern birds can. And therefore they say that they're kind of limited in what they can do aerodynamically and they probably are, for a bunch of reasons, they probably are climbing around or clambering around in trees and they are capable of doing little glides by taking off from branches. But their gliding ability is pretty bad. You know, they can't glide very far. Um, their sink rate is high. So their conclusion is <laughs> that they were rubbish. These animals were just terrible. And their, <laughs> and their paper their paper is actually titled Aerodynamic Show Membrane, Membrane-Winged Theropods, as in Scansoropterygids, were a poor gliding dead end. Now, mm. this is like chucking some substantial quantity of flammable liquid onto an existing fire 
and the internet was incandescent with rage. How dare you say Scansoropterygids were a dead end? How dare you be so rude to my baby Ambotrix Eki? <laughs> there was actually, I mean, okay, I, I, I responded before seeing any comment on this at all. I just said, well, I said, I said, obviously in you know, polite and calm, measured fashion. So I'm not really sure that interpreting a group of animals as like a dead end is the main angle you should go for. Um, it could be that, yeah, sure, they weren't doing what bats, pterosaurs, and birds, uh, you know, the, the volant ones at least have um, you know, been so good at. Maybe they were doing something else. But what most people on the internet said is, <laughs> you can't, you can't describe animals as dead ends. It's just wrong. There was a a fair bit of um, yeah, sort of like anger directed at uh, this this uh, this 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 contention. You know, surely the thing that we've misunderstood is, again, this is tapping into common tropes in paleontology. It's like if you haven't figured out if if your expectation is that an animal is, for example, a flyer, and then you find out that it was a really, really bad flyer, then your conclusion perhaps shouldn't be that this animal was just an utter failure. What a stupid waste of time. It was a rubbish experiment destined for extinction, and I'm glad it's extinct. That probably shouldn't be your take home. It should be that maybe this animal is doing something else. Like, okay, you discover a live bird in the Amazon rainforest, and it looks like it should fly. You throw it in the air, and it can't fly. Do you say, stupid I'm glad you're going to go extinct. I'm glad that President Bolsonaro, or whatever he's called, yeah. is burning your head. No, you say, well, that's interesting. This is clearly adapted for, and then you release it on the ground and it runs down a hole. And it's, ah, oh, that's why it's a rubbish flyer, because it's actually a specialised, it's, it's the mining wren. Mm -hmm. It's the Amazonian mining wren, and it lives underground, right? And you didn't know that beforehand. Could it be? I, I present this bold contention. Could it be that Scansoropterygids were doing something that meant that, yeah, they could glide, but it wasn't crucial. They didn't need to leap 60 meters across the forest canopy or they lived in an environment where the, they they did something that involved like short hops from, from, from here to there. I mean, we don't know. I'm being super vague because I, I haven't got a clue. But is it that there's some lifestyle that we don't know about you know we just haven't got enough information to really understand what the deal is and they were probably perfectly good at that uh maybe even better at it than anything else maybe they were super specialized for something that we haven't yet really got to grips with they look that way they look sort of super specialized in some way i mean i guess mm. so but yeah i i agree that um and i think in some ways, the internet anger, I think, is correct because um, the message, if you think about it in terms of communicating science to people who are interested in science but aren't specialists, the message that we found this dinosaur that we thought flew and it was shit at it <laughs> um, <laughs> is a completely useless message. What does that give you? What does that tell you? Nothing, right? It's just like, it's just there to bolster your your paper. I don't mean to be too rude about it. Everyone does this all the time, right? This is what's cool about the thing I just did, right? Um, so, yeah, I don't want to be too rude about yeah. it in that way. But oh, yeah. it's, it's missing the whole thing that we should be getting across about evolution and the history of life and animals in, and life in general is that it's all locally adapted, really, that... Um, we can't say one thing's better than another. Flight was not a goal, right? And this whole thing that it's sort of, I mean, internet rants about it and I rant, I'm ranting about it now, but I should. It mm. keeps seeping in and it keeps seep, seeping in with people who should know better and they should be much more careful about how they speak about this stuff in public, I think, right? Yes, they, I should, do strongly they agree. should not give the hint that flight was a goal and these stupid yeah. little animals, they failed at it, so they're extinct and good. That, yeah. That's just like the <laughs> dumbest possible message you could be giving with your science, right? Yeah, so so to be clear, this is a really strong and impressive study. It's a good it's a good paper. It, and you know, the authors, well done, you know, good study, and they're all, you know, very impressive scientists. But yeah, it's this it's the fact that this is a trope 
And again, we're seeing it here because it's so common. It's like if 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 a, a, a given fossil animal doesn't conform to what the, the expectation of its behavior is or, or ecology is, then automatically it's like, well, it wasn't very good at it or it had only it had only just started to do this thing. And that's why <laughs> and it's like, OK, um, if you go out and look at living animals today, how often do you find something that if you do find an animal that's like doing a half assed job at something, it's only it's it's like it can swim, but it's not very good at it. That's because, I, I, and you know, we are a good example of that. We can do a bit of everything. That's because they're animals that are their specialization is their ability to be generalists. Yeah, it's like they they can. Oh, my God, they can climb. Oh, my God, they can swim. Oh, my God, they can build tunnels, yada, yada, yada. Um, you shouldn't look at an animal and see it's bad at something and think, oh, that's just because it's just poorly adapted or hasn't yet got its, you know, gotten off the ground in terms of that adaptation. That doesn't seem to be how, because there are there are experiments in evolution. There are, um, you know, what are sometimes called hopeful monsters, creatures that have like impossible sort of, you know, halfway house adaptations or traits. But they tend to be so short lived. I mean, on the generational scale that you probably would never find them as fossils like there's got to be every step in evolution there is some you know almost impossible intermediate animal we we know there are from from hundreds of living examples loads of impossible living animals um like there's loads of examples but for fossil animals it's like if you found something and it was alive for you know these these animals you've got to think from their range and stratigraphic distribution that they were around for millions of years if not tens of millions of years so um <laughs> exactly i don't think that that's a evidence that they were i mean ultimately yeah you could say yeah they're a dead end you could say that about any group of animals that's gone extinct but because it's got that not just connotation it's got that strong message of failure which again, you know, you can say that for anything that's extinct, everything that's extinct is a failure. I just don't think that's a helpful way to see the history of life, because given that we know that that ultimately everything's a failure because everything goes extinct. Uh, well, uh, that's complicated. Yeah. And it also you know, implies a goal. Failure implies a goal, right? Yeah. And this is something that people struggle with over and over and over again with evolution, thinking that there's a goal. Um. But yeah. yeah, okay. So getting back to this paper again and its actual substance, maybe a little bit. The um, yeah, so possibly um, a better framing would have been, as you said, um, scansoropterygians. I keep messing that up. That's yeah. not far off, but it's scansoropterygids. San scan yeah, whatever. Scannies. Um, I said I said at the beginning we need something a bit shorter. Um, scanners. Scanners. The message should have been still a mystery, right? We thought maybe well, they were flying animals, but it probably doesn't look like that's really what they were doing. So, yeah. mis mystery, mis scientific mystery. What were these animals doing? I think is a better framing. Um, yeah, their their sort of take home is that um, you know that obviously this explosion in number of small um, middle Jurassic to mid Cretaceous Manoraptoran theropods, this explosion in, you know, huge numbers of new species and lineages that, that we've, you know, found since the 1990s is evidence that there really was in, in, you know, that time in that part of the world, an explosion of lineages. And they're saying that, yeah, there was like all these different groups experimenting with this, experimenting with that, you know, these guys evolved flight, these ones didn't, these ones became larger, these ones became smaller. They're saying that it's evidence of like, you know, lots of uh, diversification in uh, Manoraptorans at this place and time. And, and so here's one of those groups they were experimenting, but they, uh, it wasn't a good experiment. It was a bad experiment. <laughs> See, uh, yeah, I don't like the experiment framing either, right? Mm. Because that implies that you're again, it implies a goal. Yeah, <laughs> it's just. I agree. I, I yeah, that's yeah. that's my point. I think that yeah. these were they were perfectly good scansoropterygids, and the <laughs> fact that and the fact that we haven't found that they okay, so they're they're poor gliders and they can't take off from the ground, and they can't practice wing assisted incline running. That's because they're doing other stuff. There's something else they 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 they're doing that we haven't yet got a handle on. Um, okay, we've got to stop there. 
Um, I hope that was an interesting, uh, or I don't want to say useful, but uh, that was some kind of summary. <laughs> we we hope goods. that was some kind of summary. Aim high, yeah. aim high. Yeah. So let's just finish by, uh, very briefly, uh, we are, today is the 18th of November, 2020. We are talking about Tet Zoom Con. We uh, we are still trying to sort this out. It's not easy trying to work out exactly how you can get a, a meeting that could be attended by hundreds to work out. We're on it. Don't worry. We are talking about December the 12th. That's a Saturday. We've got like six or seven speakers and presenters who are interested in giving brief talks. It's not going to be like a huge day long thing. Um but yeah, watch this space. Basically, I mean, yeah. we'll be announcing things soon. So it will be a um, a shortish thing, maybe well, short compared to the conference, maybe five hours or so, which will start in the afternoon, I believe, because we want to give people in America, at least on the east coast, a chance to come. So um, yeah, so we're moving it yeah. to a, a bit later in the day on Saturday. So in Western Europe, it'll be from yeah, like midday-ish to, well, late evening. Yeah, so I'm sorry, places. mid-afternoon probably or even, yeah. So yeah. I think, yeah, 2 or 3 p.m. kickoff, yep. something like that. Yeah, something like but, that. Yeah, so that means if you're like the west coast of the U.S. or something, then it'll kick off at like 5 p.m. or something, I guess. Uh, no, that's not right. There's like no, eight no, hours. Oh, whatever, no, whatever. No. If you're on the east coast, you'll be. It'll start in the morning. If you're on the west coast, you have to get out really early. Sorry. Oh, maybe right. not. Maybe not. Maybe it's only nine a.m. But that's still pretty early on a Saturday. Uh, okay, let's stop there. Right. Um, um, briefly, uh, are you on the internet, John? I am at johnconway.art.art. Dot art. Yeah. Oh, is that and, new? Well, in a couple of months. I talked about it on the podcast. Um, and on Twitter, I, I am... think I'd remember. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm the John Conway on Twitter. I've also got an Instagram, which you can follow. Uh, uh, but why bother? Because Instagram sucks. You have to get everything into a stupid little square. You can yeah, it on your phone. Yeah, bloody square. You can only look at it on a phone. Exactly. You, I mean, it's just You not... can actually... Sometimes you'll find your, that you're mentioned in a story on Instagram... And you can't look at the story because it's not active anymore. That's how rubbish Instagram is. I really hate it. <laughs> so lame. I mainly hate that you can't look at it on anything but a phone. So, you know, if I do a, like a big detailed picture, the best you can see it on the biggest phone is like six inches across. Just, That's not on. true. You can't know. You can look at it on uh, any device. Yeah, sort of on their you GIMP can website. look at it. You just can't. Yeah, do anything but it's kind of, a, yeah, it's no one does because it's, yeah. it's not a fully functional thing, is it? Anyway, I'm on Instagram as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, I blog at tetrabodzoologytetzoo.com, which is also the home of this podcast. Did you know? Tetzoo.com forward slash podcast. I uh, just, uh, yeah. Don't Tetsu think you need cri- to advertise the podcast on the podcast. <laughs> we do a podcast, which you can find. Um, I'm on Twitter at, and here's where I would normally quote from the Empire Strikes Back, but I still haven't found the script, so I don't know which bits I haven't done. Tetzoo. And um, I think that just about wraps it up because I've got to go. So, okay, cheers. Bye-bye. See you, bye. On Bongo, on Bongo, the drinking in the Congo, way down deep in the middle of the Congo, the hippie, 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 the h